The opinions expressed in the Banyan Edge podcast are just that, opinions. No guest or host can see into the future or say with absolute certainty what will happen. Therefore, none of what is said during these discussions should be construed as personalized investment advice. As with all things, you should always do your own due diligence before acting on an investment idea. It's safe to assume all guests and hosts of the Banyan Edge podcast are active investors, so to avoid any concerns or thoughts of potential conflicts of interest, you should assume we hold positions in any security we discuss on the show unless otherwise noted. Finally, note that all guests or hosts of the Banyan Edge podcast may occasionally talk about taxes in this show, but none of us are qualified tax attorneys unless otherwise noted. Any questions you have related to taxes should go through a qualified professional before you make any decisions. Welcome to the Banyan Edge Podcast. Here's your host, Charles Sizemore. Hi, welcome to the Banyan Hill Podcast, America's number one source for smarter, safer, and more profitable investing, where we look to get you the very best ideas from some of the smartest minds in the business, completely unfiltered. I am your host, Charles Sizemore. So December is usually a really good month in the market. Seasonally, December tends to be one of the best as portfolio managers sort of reposition for the new year. They generally go into the new year bullish. They oftentimes have cash on hand because they've been doing some tax law selling in the fourth quarter. So December is usually a time where the market builds up for a very strong start to the new year. That has clearly not been the case this year. Yeah, the market's actually down pretty significantly in December, and year-to-date, we're still down about 17%, and this despite having actually pretty strong uh, October, and very strong October and November. So if I'm going to summarize what is wrong with the market in two words, it would be Federal Reserve. We can even summarize it with one word, just say Fed. Uh, this is what's happened. In the two years leading up to 2022, we had the Fed injecting $120 billion per month in asset purchases. They were gobbling up essentially every bond they could find in an attempt to, to prop up the capital markets to inject as much liquidity as possible. Well, they took that punch bowl away in the, in the first quarter, and apart from stopping to buy bonds, they have also been raising rates aggressively ever since. They have raised rates they actually started at zero and they've raised it to about four and a half percent today. So that is that's where we are. And you know, going back a second, it's not that the Fed was ever buying stocks or buying real estate, at least that we know of. That's that's not what they do, but a rising tide lifts all boats. So when the Fed is injecting $120 billion a month into bonds, that injects liquidity that sloshes out into other things. That was a lot of fun in 2020 and 2021 when it was mostly asset price inflation. No one complains when the value of their house goes up or the value of their stock portfolio goes up. But when it started spilling over into consumer price inflation, that's when the Fed got nervous. That's when it got uncomfortable for the rest of us. And that's when the fund stopped. That's when the interest rate hike started and et cetera. So that's where we are today. It is an extraordinarily difficult time to be investing. That's why I'm really glad we have help. So with that, I'd like to interview my guest today, Adam Odell, who is the founder of Green Zone Fortunes, 10X Stocks, Max Profit Alert, and Wednesday Windfalls, and Mike Carr, who is the founder of Precision Profits and One Trade. So uh, getting right into it, uh, Adam, let's start with you. What is your take on this? How do you feel about where we are in the cycle? We've been here before. You're a student of history. You're a student of cycles. What happened last time? 
Sure. Well, one thing I picked up on in your introduction is that you called this rate hike cycle uh, aggressive. And I think that is certainly the consensus. Everybody who uh, started investing since the late, uh, the last great financial crisis um, has really seen a, an atypical environment and, and is now coming to terms with what a rate hike, rate hike cycle actually looks like. Um, and it feels aggressive, certainly, you know, three quarter uh, percent uh, rate hikes, you know, one after the other feels aggressive. Uh, we've gone from basically zero, the ZERP days to four and a quarter. Um, so it feels aggressive. But if you look at past rate hike cycles during periods of high inflation, where inflation was over 6%, there's about five or six of them, um, you can actually make a case that um, either this rate hike cycle has not been as aggressive as prior ones, or that it hasn't lasted near as long yet. Uh, so in 1980 and the 1974 cycles, um, those rose rates a lot faster than we've currently seen so far in this in this cycle. And then the 67 and 76 cycles uh, lasted a lot longer, between two and a half and three and a half years. Um, so if you look at that, we're kind of in the middle of those. It's been more aggressive than the 67 and the 76 ones, but it hasn't, hasn't lasted nearly as long. So um, one way to look at that is that um, people feel like the Fed is being hawkish, but perhaps they're not as hawkish as it feels. Well, I would add to that as well, you know, for most people investing today, a lot of people really, this is their first experience at all with, with Fed hikes. The last cycle, if we even want to call it that, you know, 2016 to 2019, the Fed raised rates from zero to about two and a half percent before having to reverse course. So this really is for a lot of investors, this is new. You know, they weren't investing when, when you were um, you know, in those time periods that, that you laid out. Mike, what's your take on this? Well, interest rates tend to move in cycles that last 30 to 40 years. So they go up for 30 to 40 years. They go down for 30 to 40 years. We are now in the upstage, and this is new for everybody. Very few people have survived an upstage. Uh, it's a sea change, if you will. And it's a whole new environment that's going to last for decades. We have to learn how to invest when money's not free. When money's not free, Uber doesn't make sense. You know, so we've got to change how we think. A zero interest rate environment is interesting. Uh, projects that probably should have never gotten funded get funded. It's that kind of proverbial filling that plate of spaghetti on the wall and, and seeing what noodles stick. In a higher interest rate environment, you actually have to be more selective. You know, money is no longer free. Money is no longer readily available. You have to pick and choose what gets funded. So I think that is interesting. I think that's, that also... It kind of ties into you know, what's done well this year and what hasn't. Technology has been really one of the biggest laggards. You know, technology and growth in general has really suffered this year because you don't have that, you know, again, that spaghetti on the wall effect of just, hey, money's free. I just throw whatever, you know, let's just throw as much money as we want at as many different directions and we'll see what works. That really doesn't fly in this environment. Building on Adam's point about 1966, also confirms that. Um, 66 was the first time inflation was rising that wasn't understood to be war-related. It was, in fact, the Vietnam War, plus LBJ's desire to spend billions of dollars at the time that we didn't have on domestic spending programs. We're right there. We're not funding our war this time, but we are sending billions to the Ukraine that come from somewhere. Plus, I really I can't keep up with how many trillions Congress has allocated over the last five years. There's, there's a lot of zeros going on there. 
Yeah, and that's inflation. the war on COVID, right? I mean, it didn't the balance sheet just absolutely swell because of the war on COVID, if you want to call it that? So certainly, um, it's it's been an unprecedented time of both monetary and fiscal stimulus, and now uh, we're seeing that trend to start to reverse. It's the old guns and guns versus butter debate for the the econ nerds econ nerds out there. You know, guns being military spending, butter being domestic spending. You add to that this third thing, which is health spending and and that really did turbocharge everything i think that is kind of what makes this period similar to past periods but also different you know, we also had that covid spending which did kind of blew up kind of blew up the world as we know it and we kind of we're still dealing with the aftermath but you know be that well, as on that man. point i mean i think that charles you bring up a good point about covid that um you know i think a lot of the market has priced in that the supply chain uh the supply shortages we're seeing which is one part of the cause of inflation uh, that those are going to be temporary. And we heard the Federal Reserve called you know, transitory. And in, in the beginning, they said that inflation would be transitory. And I think this idea is that once we fix um, all of the you know, broken links of the chain from COVID, that it's going to go back to a world where we have you know, 2% or sub-inflation. And uh, I'm just not sure that's the case. I think that that might have been a catalyst that kind of kickstarted some of the inflation that we're seeing this year. And, and I think it will ease off in fits and starts, but what if we're in an environment where for you know longer inflation for longer, we, we need to kind of start to grapple with that. That's a, that's a really good point. And I, we've written about this in, in Banyan Edge. You know, really, there's two types of inflation. If you want to just break down the world into two types of inflation, and both can exist at the same time, of course, you have demand pull and you have cost push. Demand pull is what the Fed is actually good at fighting. Demand pull inflation is, hey, you know, we're all wanting to buy the same stuff. We're bidding up the prices because we have too much cash. We have too much demand. Raising interest rates makes that a little bit harder to do. It tends to dampen demand. That, that's a very easy problem to fix. The harder problem is cost push. This is what you had in the 1970s when you had the OPEC oil embargoes and all of a sudden a basic material that we need for the economy petroleum, became much more scarce, which caused prices to spike, which then flowed over into everything else. So the, uh, some of the price spikes we saw in the 70s were not purely due to excessive demand. They were also due to curtailed supply. Well, that ties into some of these pandemic-related uh, supply chains that we were dealing with, and those can be resolved relatively quickly. The question is, is it bigger than that? Um, something we've talked about before is, you know, are we entering a period of deglobalization where, you know, the, the trend of the last, you know, Mike mentioned, you know, multi-decade cycles here. One of the biggest factors that led to, you know, falling interest rates, falling inflation over the last several decades was globalization. That's now going into reverse and that battleship doesn't turn on a dime. So I think that idea that this, this trend is going to be with us for a while, I don't see how it's not. Yeah, I think deglobalization comes with more spending because governments, state governments compete for those new jobs. And we know that Wisconsin paid Foxconn $3 billion for a couple of jobs, basically, because it never materializes. Low return on investment there is wasted capital. So in addition to now having the problem of inflation, we have more capital going for low return projects. And it doesn't work in this environment. Ben well, that's said, a good Mike, that's a that's a very good point because what's you know, how do you how do you fix inflation? Well, you fix inflation, you, you can fix this supply uh, supply chain inflation, this cost push inflation with tech, with, with investments in tech. But if those investments we're making are low return investments, that's a long road to home. 
And it's an impossible road to hoe because we just can't get there funding the low productive sectors. And the low productive sectors are the easy to get jobs for politicians. Let me go get a warehouse that'll add 200 jobs to my district. And that is how a lot of the thinking goes lately. Um, hey, those 200 jobs may, may be 400 that. votes for that politician. Exactly. And that is what we're faced with now. And this is the wrong time to have politicians making narrow decisions. We need to start thinking bigger. What's best for the country? Well, this is where it also gets interesting. Like, let, let's like let, let's let's forget for a minute that a lot of these investments are low return. Let, let's just assume that over the next 10, 20 years, they're fantastic high return investments. Let's just play devil's advocate and say that happens. The issue is you still have these huge cost outlays today. The benefits for all of this, 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 this build out in the US, this deglobalization, you know, re-onshoring, just, just all of that, that we're not going to get benefit from that for years if not a decade or more, but that's a big cost today, right? That is what's in trying to fight inflation over the long term. We're actually doing things that fuel it in the short term. All of the materials that will be spent in building these new fabrication plants and building this and building that and infrastructure, et cetera, all that's actually inflationary today, even if it's ultimately deflationary. I think labor is a good point on that topic. Um, if you think about the past 20 years, the the price that we pay for a TV or just generally consumer electronics is been in a deflationary environment because the cost of labor has been outsourced to uh, Asia. And if we are now kind of seeing a sea change where we're seeing a reversal of that, we're seeing deglobalization, we're seeing onshoring, we're seeing for whether it's for political or security or economic reasons, we're seeing a lot of talk about bringing a lot of those jobs back in, uh, into the country, um, particularly in the, in the chip manufacturing uh, industry, just as one example. But from what I can tell, a lot of this inflation besides the supply chain related to COVID is being driven by what wage growth is like five and a half percent right now. So the Fed funds rate at four and a quarter is still below the rate of inflation in wages. So, um, you know, not only are Social Security benef uh, beneficiaries getting an eight and some percent uh, raise this year, this coming year, but, you know, real workers are earning 5.5% more. And that just feeds that positive feedback loop of, uh, of, of inflation. It, it at least allows all of the stimulus that got flooded in the market to kind of maintain a certain level of spending because folks are making more money now. We're seeing wage growth when we haven't seen it for quite a long time. Um, and then that wage growth is going to, fuel more inflation. It's kind of a vicious cycle. So I, I certainly am all for bringing jobs home, but I'm worried about the consequence of wage growth on inflation, whether it will truly be um, a shorter term thing. I, I think it's going to last longer than most folks think. We actually learned about that in uh, business school. It's called the dreaded wage price spiral, which mm. is, that's, ex that's exactly what you described. It's a spiral right. in which Higher wages lead to higher prices. Higher prices lead to the need for higher wages. And that's that cycle doesn't last forever, but it lasts for a while and it's not particularly easy to break. Well, like Adam noted, we're not going back to 2% inflation. And that's so important to remember because let's say the average working career, 20 to 65, 45 years, at 2% inflation, prices take about 36 years to double. So once during your working career, at just 3%, they double every 24 years. So twice during your working career, that's a huge difference in lifestyle. 
we got used to inflation working career. Right? You may be retired for 20 years. I mean, you could see prices exactly. double or more within your retirement years as well. And that's going to kill a lot of people's retirement accounts. If prices double over 20 years, um, retirement accounts basically aren't set up for that. Well, and, and that's maybe they are, maybe they're not, but nobody alive today has ever experienced it, right? Anybody that really lived through the last period of inflation, which would have been you know, the 70s, they're not, these aren't the same people saving for retirement today. These people would have been in the early stage of their career at that time. They didn't really have a lot of money to invest. You have to find people with serious gray hair to find someone that was really investing and trying to navigate this back in the 70s. Like there's just, there aren't very many of them left. I remember picking up 30-year bonds at 15% almost. And then just you collected that every year. And as you watched rates drop, you worried, where am I going to reinvest? Um, but I think you know, that's a good point. Guaranteed was great. Yeah, you know, I was just talking to someone at a at a Christmas party recently about, you know, even just seven. I mean, imagine you could get seven percent on the 30-year bond. You put a million dollars in that, you're earning seventy thousand dollars a year just on a on a safe government bond, um, you know, safe quote unquote. Um, and, and that's really the upside, I think. That's a silver lining of a higher interest rates environment. But the thing is, we need we need positive real rates. Right now, inflation is running above the Fed funds rate. So it's I think the the real effective rate is minus 2.2 or 2.5 percent. Um, so, you know, folks are still behind in that scenario, but I think eventually it'll change. Um, but I was thinking we should take a step back and, and, you know, Mike brought up a good point that, you know, inflation could last a lot longer. And I, I think that that's a non-consensus view because I feel like everybody's talked about when CPI went down by 0.1 or 0.2% the past couple of prints, uh, you know, this idea of peak inflation. But, um, you know, I saw a chart the other day um, that research affiliates put out. And they basically looked at um, past cycles when inflation went above 3% or above 6% and above 8%. And basically, when, when it gets above 3 or 6%, it takes a while to come back down to, to 2 or 3%. But when it gets above 8%, the, the number of years it took to get back down to 3% was between 6 and 20 years, with the median being 10 years. Um, so really, this idea that we're going to have a very short, sudden spike in inflation, and then it's going to come back down to 2 or 3%, um, I think is non-consensus, but I think that's really where the risk lies. So when we've had recessions in the past, unemployment has always risen above 6%. And to get there today, we would need 4 million people to be unemployed. Um, imagine the fallout from 4 million unemployed. No, think about the fallout we had the last time we had you know, pretty significant unemployment, you know, the 2008 meltdown that mm -hmm. was an aftermath. That was a very volatile period in, in U.S. politics. Uh, there was a lot of pressure on both parties to you know, do something about it. It created a lot of problems, at least back then at that time, inflation was dead on arrival so that the Fed had a lot of flexibility to lower rates, get experimental. You know, they, you know, they, they did QE infinity, if you remember that, quantitative easing, quantitative easing to infinity. They had a lot of options at their disposal. Those options no longer exist while they're simultaneously fighting inflation. So that's where it gets tricky. Now, so you know, we've kind of laid out this, this scary case. You know, we're all kind of prepared for what, what could be coming here. We like to be sober realist here. You know, we like, we're optimistic. We like to invest, let's trade, we like to make money but we're prepared for the environment ahead to be a rough one to navigate. Well, 
what worked in the past? What's uh, how how do we navigate this? If history is any guide, what worked? I'll jump in on that point. I mean, sir, I think it's first of all funny that you have uh, two shorter term technical and quantitative model driven traders like Mike and myself talking about um, Fed Fed watch talk and, and macro. Uh, economics. But if you look, if you really zoom out, and if you look at some of the investment themes that drove the decades, 1970s and 80s and 90s and 2000s, you can really see that there is a rotation once once about every decade and often is ushered in by a new bear market. Um, but if you think about the 1970s, that was really the most recent period of high inflation, a number of aggressive rate hike cycles ending in, you know, with Vol Volcker in the um, late 70s and early 80s. And at the end of 1980, if you looked globally at the 10 largest companies, six of them were oil companies. So you had Exxon, Standard Oil, Schlumberger, uh, Shell, Mobil, and Atlantic Richfield. And so these were like the, the biggest companies and the, you know, their, their stock prices had risen the most and they become the most prominent companies uh, of that decade. And I really think that we're gonna we're on the verge of seeing something similar happen. Um, juxtapose that to the most recent decade that we're ending, 2020, 2021, it was basically all tech. It was Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Tesla, um, Taiwan Semiconductor, Tencent, Nvidia. Um, so really, and it was funny because this was the first decade of five decades that Exxon actually fell out of that top 10 list. And I should say this top 10 list excludes Saudi Aramco, which is about a $1.8 trillion company, uh, you know, controlled by the Saudis. So obviously, I think that um, energy is going to be a really integral part of the next decade, not only in trying to increase supply to, to ease some of the um, the price pressure, uh, but I really think that a lot of these companies that, that weathered the bear market of 2014 through 2020 have cut their production costs to the bone. And uh, basically every a uh, bit of extra price they can get at, at the market price is going to go to their bottom line. So that's really where I'm looking. Yeah, they're lean and mean. This is the leanest the energy sector has really been in our lifetimes. And part of that comes from, you know, good night. Think about how difficult the pricing environment since you know, roughly 2015 has been. The, the, the companies you see today are the ones that survived one of the worst bear markets in energy in history. So these are these are the tough ones. You know, these are the real survivors. These are the quality companies. The ones that weren't quality didn't make it. You know, they, they, they did not survive the chaos of the last seven years. Now, Mike, you, you've uh, you've written about energy as well. I think it is, as Adam points out, we have two guys that are both kind of short-term, kind of momentum-driven traders, uh, particularly like options. You guys are, you guys have a lot of overlap. And I think it's interesting that that both of you for, you know, partly for, for macro reasons, are, are both very bullish on energy. Yeah, that is really the only sector that shows any promise in the long term. I know a lot of people love to talk about consumer staples because, you know, you're always going to need to have the staples. But the staples companies have incredibly high profit margins right now. And they're not going to be able to sustain that. So as those profit margins contract, their profits are going to come down their valuations are going to come down and they're going to stay profitable, but they're not going to deliver the stock returns because in the previous cycles, you had multiple expansion going on in staples. Now you're going to have multiple contraction. So I think staples you're going to hear a lot about, but ignore the talk. That's interesting. And this kind of comes back to interest rates and inflation. Why would the staples companies not maintain the profitability? Like, why not? What's the problem? Well, part of that is their materials costs have risen. 
their financing costs have risen. They have all of these, uh, these cost pressures they can't control. And their only option is to, of course, raise prices on their consumers, which is unpopular and, and difficult. So they are likely looking at margin compression due to some of the, due to these very factors that we're talking about. Yeah, and they've, you know, I think they've shrunk packaging as much as they can. So it's price hikes that are all that's left. I mean, we've all seen the packages get smaller and smaller. So <laughs> the amount of air inside the box keeps getting smaller. Yeah, they, they found uh, it's it's funny. We, we live in an, an age of of, of innovation, of, of smart everything, and they really have squeezed just every last nickel they possibly can out of uh, out of those those functional costs like that. So. What's left to cut at this point? <laughs> there's there's not a, lot, a lot of fat on the bone left, left to cut. So, Mike, going back to you, you had also mentioned that there is sort of a, earlier uh, last week, you wrote a piece that suggested that uh, some of Uncle Sam's decisions may also be playing into a kind of longer term uh, energy, a longer term bullishness in the energy sector. What can you tell us on that? The Strategic Petroleum Reserve has been drawn down dramatically, and it was drawn down to offset higher gasoline prices rather than meet a strategic purpose. That was more tactical reason. It's got to be refilled in order to maintain the strategic reserve. So now we have a choice. We either give up a good asset or we refill it. The government has said they want to refill the strategic reserve and they want to do it at about 70 bucks a barrel. So that means prices aren't going to fall below 70 bucks a barrel because the government is standing by to buy as much as possible at that price point. There is no excess production. Government's your buyer. We just don't have an opportunity for prices to fall from here. Yeah, that, that's interesting because the market's already fairly tight. You know, the energy market's been really quite tight for a while now, and OPEC has been kind of regulating supply. They're not interested in seeing prices collapse again, so they've been keeping it fairly tight as well. And in this market that's in a real tight equilibrium, you add this big buyer, just you throw in this extra big buyer to the mix. Well, all of a sudden that throws it out of equilibrium and it it, it skews it towards you know demand. And that's that's interesting. I think that's where we are. The you know prices probably weren't likely to fall too much anyway. They were probably likely to go significantly higher. And now on top of that, you have this big buyer in the form of the government that's just like throw it. Well, I'm wow. I did not even mean to go with this kind of cheesy metaphor, but like throwing gasoline in the fire when talking about the price of mm -hmm. <laughs> talking about the price of fuel. So there you go. Exactly. Yeah, that's it. We just we now have ensured that prices can fall and they would have fallen in a recession because demand does drop during a recession. Um, this well, uh, that. in the 70s, you know, we were sort of in and out of recession the whole decade in the 70s were a pretty miserable time um, economically. It was the decade of malaise was the, the word that Jimmy Carter used. So, you know, we, we did have high energy prices while also having recessionary conditions. In fact, the high energy prices were a contributing factor to the recessionary conditions. So right now, what, what are we looking at? You know, the yield curve is the most inverted it's been in 40 years. In plain English, that means long-term rates are actually lower than short-term rates right now. That's generally been a sign of market distress, a, a sign of, of recession to come. 
Uh, various big banks, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, et cetera, have come out saying they fully expect a recession in the next year. What do you guys think? You know, are we heading for recession? What was what would that look like? Yeah, and that's one of the consensus view, and I think that it's probably uh, you know probably unavoidable. It's just a matter of how long it lasts, how deep it is, which sectors it hits the hardest. And really, I think one of the wild cards is China. So China is now kind of on the verge of what I believe is probably a more permanent pivot uh, toward reopening. I know it's had some false starts, but I think that China. Um, it's really held back a ton of demand in, in its draconian lockdowns. And so I think that when China does reopen uh, fully, uh, there is going to be a lot of pent-up demand. Do I think that China's reopening in 2023 is going to be enough to avoid uh, all recessions everywhere? Not, not necessarily, but I think it could uh, make for a somewhat milder case. But really, you know, a lot of it does come back to inflation, whether it lasts for longer, because that's going to have its own um, effect. So I, I think that we should watch China for some cues from, for some clues there. Yeah, no, I agree. And then the, the second part of that is no matter what China does, it's likely to produce some amount of inflation. If if China's growth, if, if China just opens the doors, you know, COVID ends up kind of, you know, ripping through, but then passing and, and you know, China is back. Well, that means a lot of new demand, which means a lot more inflation, right? But then the other side of that is, let's say China opens up and then it actually ends up snapping shut again because, oh, you know, COVID got out of control. We had to close factories or our workers died, whatever. You know, if, if you get a negative scenario where, where China actually has to snap back again, then that's also in inflationary because it's it means less supply. So mm -hmm. China's contributing to inflation. It's happening one way or another. It's just a question of is it happening because of higher demand or is it happening because of lower supply? I guess we'll find out soon enough. Uh, Mike, what are your thoughts? Are we, are we having a recession next year or are we already in a recession? Like, what, how does it look to you? Yeah, I think we're having a recession. I think that's such an important point because it feels like a recession right now. But if it's not a recession, that means it's going to be very painful when the recession does come. And this is what Powell has been saying since August. The Fed chair has said there's going to be pain ahead. Um, I think we're going to see unemployment rise. It's going to be a very difficult recession. And the Fed doesn't really have the tools to get us out of it quickly. It's going to be like the late 70s, where we make progress on inflation. The Fed has to take their eye off the prize to ease unemployment. Inflation roars back up. The Fed jumps back into action. And we're going to have this back and forth. It's going to last for years. It's not a short-term fix here. So would you want Jerome Powell's job? Hell no. no. <laughs> who, who would? Who would? The guy has to be an absolute. Like, what, what did this guy do uh, in his younger years to just have the self-loathing he must have to take on this kind of responsibility? He must have done something really bad, and he's just resolved to punish himself for the rest of his life. That, that is my only theory as to why the man even wants the job. But summing this up, I think we're we're in agreement. Inflation is sticky. It's not. I mean, it's hey, if if it if it uh, if, if inflation falls, continues to fall faster than than originally looked like, that's great. That would be fantastic news. We really probably shouldn't hold our breath. That looks like inflation is going to be with us for longer. You know, even you know if it dips another couple basis, you know, ten basis points here, a percent there. It, there's a long glide path from current levels down to the ten percent target of, of the Fed. And let's say miraculously they hit that, they may overshoot, push us into deflation. So no matter what happens, we're looking at a, a pretty tricky market 
based on this inflation issue and based on the high interest rates that come with it. And one sector we, we seem to be in agreement that looks good is, is energy. Everything else, you know, you guys, you know, tend to be more short-term in, in your trading. You, you tend to be more opportunistic. I'm sure we may find a fantastic short-term trade in, in technology tomorrow. Who knows? But if we're looking for kind of long-term trends to play over the next year, more, we're likely to find those in energy. I think that's, that's, that seems to be the consensus here. Well, yeah, and even if, I mean, one way to look at it is through the lens of value. You're a value guy, Charles. Um, so Mike made a good point that even while uh, consumer staples companies are likely to have persistent and rather robust profits throughout a recession, even if they come off of uh, the recent peaks, um, the, the, the starting valuations of their stocks are too high. So you're most likely to see multiple compression. Um, so, you know, myself and a number of my colleagues, we're bullish on technology over the long run. That's how societies um, move forward. That's how, you know, new innovations make us more efficient, whether it's in the energy market or elsewhere. Um, so to say that, you know, you can't really be bearish technology for the long run as far as innovation and um, the, the progress that it spurs, but you can be a price sensitive buyer. And if, you know, pretty much when you see these decade long um, sea changes and shifts between leadership, um, you typically see at the end of that um, that run up, you know, just price to earnings multiples and price to cash flow multiples that don't make sense for the investor. Um, so that's really what we're you know talking about. You know, energy right now is the cheapest as it's been in decades. So even if we don't see the type of growth that we're expecting, just any bit of modest um, multiple expansion could really make a lot of money in, in the decade. It's cheap and it's in an uptrend and very few things are cheap or internet trend, let alone cheap and internet trend. Energy really kind of stands alone on that front. So I think that's that's fantastic. Well, gentlemen, we did have uh, quite a few questions come in over the last couple of days I'd like to get to. Do you guys have any parting shots before we get to those? Just be willing to adapt. I mean, what um, I think a lot of people are waiting for the Fed to, fed to pivot um, just so they can buy the same stocks that they owned for the past you know, five to seven years. And uh, I really think that bear markets usher in leadership changes. So, you know, if we do see a pivot and we start to see a new rally, that's great. I don't think it's going to be in the same names that led the market through 2020, 2021. Mike, do you agree? Disagree? Well, last week was a really bad week for the market as a whole. And every sector was down except for energy. So we are seeing that leadership emerging. When everything's down except one sector, it's really time to pay attention. Yeah, I would agree. And history would seem to back us up there. As Adam pointed out, the leaders of one bull market very rarely carry over to be leaders of the next bull market. The companies might be great. The companies might be changing the world. The companies may be you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread. But the fact is, their, their multiples expanded a bit. They went too far too fast in the previous bull market. It takes time for their prices to normalize. Amazon.com, fine example. It was one of the darlings of the 90s. It really crashed and burned hard in you know, 2000, 2002. It took years for that stock to regain leadership. And what, are we seeing a repeat of that today? Maybe. We'll see. So with that, let's uh, let's see what some of our, our listeners or viewers, I guess they could be listeners or viewers, listeners and viewers. They'd be using their eyes and their ears here. Let's see what uh, some of them have had to say. John and Jane. They're, they're real names, I might add. Those are not those are not big names. Wrote in to say, at first, I thought the podcast was going to be way too long. I was mistaken. 
I learned so much from the podcast because of the different points of view about stock trading. I've been a member of Banyan Hill for about two years because I had my major finances being invested by professionals. And at the time, the person who was managing our money was too conservative. I have been investing into stocks over the future. This presentation gave me the opportunity to see the total picture of Banyan Hill services and to understand the purpose of each one. Watching this presentation gave me the opportunity to focus on my original intent and to accept the fact that I'm betting on the future and the next generation. I am diversified. Thank you for this. I appreciate all the services you provide and thank you for the presentation. Well, John and Jane, you are welcome. It was certainly our pleasure. And that's one of the things we're really aiming to do in the Banyan Edge podcast. We have an all-star team here of good traders, good investors, all that bring a unique perspective. Uh, it's fantastic to have everybody on one team to give, give their views here. So we look forward to doing this for forever. And, and thank you for listening and please continue doing so. Now, this, uh, this question is, is more for me. Gary writes in to say, you have recommended pipeline companies. These companies don't seem to be benefiting from increased fossil fuel prices and demand. Why not? So that uh, comes down to the pipeline companies being midstream as opposed to being um, you know, upstream or downstream. And, and what that means is they're in transportation. The pipeline companies transport. I think there's still fantastic opportunities in that space, particularly for income investors. But what Adam and, and Mike are talking about is more exploration and production. They're looking at you know, the, the companies actually pulling the oil out of the ground and, and bringing it to market. So there's opportunities and all the above, but that is a clear distinction. What we're talking about in today's show is less the transport stocks, which I actually do like. I do like those, those pipelines. But the bigger opportunities where you're likely to really benefit from a surge in energy prices, yeah, that's in the exploration of production. Stephen writes, yes, indeed, it's high time the U.S. reestablish its position as the leader in chip technology and manufacturing for a number of reasons, not just economically, but strategically as well. We also need to get back to the forefront of energy research and development, especially nuclear. We've almost completely abandoned the one source of energy that is at once the most efficient, but also the one that we will need to greatly expand in order to offset the reduction of fossil fuel-based energy and enable the renewable green energy sectors to become dominant. The U.S. has so little involvement in nuclear energy that we have abdicated the future research and development to China, Russia, and to some degree India in favor of reliance on wind and solar, yada, yada. Adam, I know you mentioned nuclear. And that's something that you focused on in one of your recent issues of Green Zone Fortunes. How, how does nuclear fit into this? We're very bullish on oil and gas. Over the long term, we're bullish on renewables. But where does nuclear fit into this mess? Yeah, it's misunderstood. I believe, you know, there's a lot of proponents of wind and solar and industrial scale batteries. And certainly I see the potential long run. I think that the market is expecting those technologies to come to market and be profitable for the companies and investors probably sooner than will actually happen. I think it will take longer for a lot of these, these things to be built out and for the technology to really get there. And I think the stopgap, the interim step that we ought to be taking is, um, is uranium, is, is nuclear. Um, so we basically, about a month ago in Green Zone Fortunes, um, where we add about one new uh, company position to our portfolio every month and do a detailed write-up on it, um, we made the case that there's an American company that has an effective monopoly on, um, on uranium, uh, specifically uh, high assay, low enriched uranium. 
And so, um, you know, there's just this misperception in the market. It's kind of like where, you know, a lot of people feel that flying on a commercial plane is uh, more risky than getting in your car and going to the grocery store down the street. Uh, but in fact, more people have injuries and, and fatalities from getting in the car than they do on an airplane. It's just that those are bigger events. And the same things happened in the nuclear industry, whether it's Fukushima or Three Mile Island or um, you know, Chernobyl. Uh, these are notable events that make us feel that um, nuclear is dangerous. But really, you can put on the on one hand the number of events and the coal industry. I come from West Virginia and you know, know plenty about the coal industry. Every year, the coal industry does more damage to the environment and to people's health than the um, nuclear industry has done in total uh, since the 1950s. So um, really the technology is there and uh, it's just really been a, a story of underinvestment and because uh, you know fossil fuels or the far out future has been more uh, interesting, but I think that it's a good stopgap measure that investors should be looking at. Yeah, you probably saw the headline as a week or two ago, uh, scientists have actually made nuclear fusion um, like Productive. Yeah, in the past, nuclear like what we have in nuclear reactor nuclear reactors today is is nuclear fission. Uh, what they managed to do with nuclear fusion, which before was never viable because it used more energy to create the nuclear reaction than they were getting from the reaction itself. Right. And so they've actually managed to create the first efficient um, fusion reaction, which is interesting. If this, if they continue to develop this technology, if this is viable on a commercial scale, this this will change the world. You know, this is this is something that um, this is unlimited energy, essentially creating our own, you know, what, what powers the sun can can power industry. And they will continue to develop it. And it will, I believe, eventually become commercialized. Uh, I know we'll get this question. Uh, so I'll go ahead and try to head it off. I think it is still decades away. Um, so I think that, you know, it was a great breakthrough, but is it investable? Is there any way to profit from that um, breakthrough now or even five to 10 years from now? I, I don't see it yet. Yeah, I would tend to agree. It's, it's, it's amazing. Just the science fiction geek in me thinks it's it's amazing. This is Star Trek caliber stuff, but it's we're a long way from that being an actual investable theme. And in the meantime, we have oil and gas. So moving on. Um, Quabena writes in to, to ask, thank you for your insight into investing. I would like to invest, but I do not know how. I listen to all the exciting communications and interviews you give, but I am a, at a loss for what to do. I live in the UK as an anesthesiologist, but money is tight and I have to work my socks off to make ends meet, look after my family and pay my bills. Holidays are out of the question. Can you help me learn the act of investing? I'm 58 years old and the future to me is quite hazy. What can help me so that I can teach others. So, Mike, I'll start with you. What advice do you give for someone who's just looking to start investing? Where do you, what direction do you point them in? I think it's important to remember that you can paper train. So you can gain experience without actually putting money at risk while you're building up your capital. You find trades, you write down where you, and I mean, I guess you can put it in a spreadsheet now that we have computers, um, but you write down the entry price, you write down your exit strategy, you write down your exit price, you learn from each trade, you study that sheet of paper. And there's no real way to learn except by experience. So I think the idea of paper trading is often overlooked. And I would uh, recommend that Carbana try paper trading. As far as learning the basics, we do our best to cover all of that, but 
most brokerages have amazing amounts of free training resources available. Set up a paper trading account, for example, at Schwab or a TD Ameritrade and take advantage of their educational resources without having to put money at risk. Yeah, that's a smart place to start. You know, Adam, do you, have, do you have anything to add? I'll piggyback that. I think that it's a great idea to, to paper trade and, and get a feel for it. And, um, you know, we offer here at Banyan Hill a number of different ways to make money. And my car and myself are a little bit on the shorter term end of that spectrum, meaning that we'll often recommend trades that last uh, a few days to a few weeks. And I think there's a misnomer in looking at that type of approach. You know, we've been taught by the Warren Buffett uh, disciples that long-term buy and hold and waiting, you know, tens of years to have that value creation come to the market price is the way to be a wealthy investor. And Mike wrote a great introduction piece to our Banyan Edge audience uh, a week or so ago, talking about how when he came out of the Air Force, he was doing that type of investing and the returns that he was getting were positive and even better than the market, but they weren't enough to meet financial goals. And when I hear about an anesthesiologist in his mid to late fifties that uh, can't take a holiday, that my, you know, my heart breaks because I feel like there are ways to make money in the markets in shorter term trading strategies that are actually, in my view, less risky and more efficient than longer term strategies. Uh, one reason is you get a lot more feedback. You know, if you make a trade today and in four days, you close it for either a loss or a profit, you can analyze that result and see what went well or what went against you and make an adjustment by the time you make your next trade. If instead your strategy relies on you holding something for 10 years, well, what if your thesis or what if the macroeconomic environment changes five years into that 10-year holding period and you're stuck and then you're 68 years old and you found out that you chose the wrong strategy and what are you going to do at that point? So uh, I think Mike and I are both um, singing the same um, song in that in the sense that short-term trading can be a great way to get started. Uh, it can be a way to actually keep your risk down relative to longer-term investing. And of course, when you're doing it right, you can make gains uh, much faster than the overall market and much, and much higher. So um, that's something also that I would recommend. Yeah. And, you know, Mike mentioned paper trading. I would say, you know, the next step after paper trading is to invest with just very modest amounts of money. Just <clears throat> make your trades small. Don't wager that much. Wager maybe a couple hundred dollars as opposed to thousands or tens of thousands. You know, cut your teeth, get used to it. And, and once you've developed a style that works for you, because every investor is a little bit different, you know, their styles are going to be a little bit different. Once you develop that style that seems to work for you, then you can make your position sizes bigger, of course, keeping your risk management in place. But there's nothing wrong with just starting small. And you know the beauty of a shorter term strategy is it's rinse and repeat. You can you get several iterations to, to try things out and you figure out what works for you. You figure out what doesn't. But yeah, that's 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 it. That's going to wrap up this uh, this issue of 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 the Banyan uh, Banyan Edge podcast. The Banyan Edge podcast. You gentlemen have any parting words of insight? Like I said earlier, I think just being willing to adapt and being willing to uh, you know, look at the new reality and being flexible in, in mind and, and in your actions is key to surviving. And, and it's nice that at the end of the year, I mean, a lot of people take stock of what went well and what didn't in the prior year and make New Year's resolutions. So now's the time to, to readjust. If, if, what, if what you were invested in in 2022 was not working for you, why would you do it again in 2023? Very true. Mike, have anything to add? I think Adam said it all. Just pay attention to what's working and follow what's working. Follow what's working. Well, on that note, that's going to wrap it up. We will see you all next week.